So if you would turn to Romans 8 again, please. Romans chapter 8. We'll pray. Father, just ask once again that you'll speak to all of us in your sovereign grace and mercy. You'll meet with us today, Lord, and just ask you'll impress on all of our hearts the grace that you manifested to us in adopting us into your family and that we can now call you Father and that we're part of the family of God. I just ask you'll make that real to all of us today. Everyone sitting in this room, that's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll begin reading in Romans chapter 8, verse 12 down to verse 17. And Paul writes there, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together with him. Amen. And this is where I was wanting to start, and I ended up backtracking clear back to verse 1. So we've had to kind of work our way this way. This is sermon number 4. We're going to talk about the great doctrine of adoption. There was a man, his name was Russell Moore. He was the dean of theology at Southern Seminary when I was there. He's since got another position now. Very good preacher. Almost didn't hear any message he, he taught that I didn't think was really anointed and of the Lord. And he's got five children, all boys. Three of them are natural children, and two of them he adopted from a Russian orphanage. So he said when he and his wife flew over to Russia and walked into that orphanage to see their sons for the first time, what struck them wasn't the stench, even though he said the stench was so bad that he drived heave. And it wasn't the squalor of the place. It wasn't the fact that this building, there's paint falling down. It was a totally dilapidated building. The thing he said that struck him when he walked into this room filled with babies was the silence. He said even though that room was crammed full of little tiny infants, there wasn't a whimper, there wasn't a cry, and there surely wasn't any laughter. He said the only sound he heard was cribs banging up against the wall. Babies comforting themselves. And he said it suddenly dawned on him why. Because he said this institution, and it was an institution, was filled with babies with no mother and with no father and with nobody to respond to them when they cried. And so they never did. He said it was just a room full of silence. So they met the two boys that they were going to adopt for the first time, and they spent a week with them. They'd go in there every day. They'd talk to them. They'd hold them. They'd read to them, and they would comfort them. Did that for an entire week. So on the last day, they're getting ready to go back, and they went there, and they're like, the people told them, they said, all we can give you is five minutes with those boys before you're going to have to leave. So they went in there for five minutes, and talked to him briefly, and they turned to walk, and as they're walking out the door, one of the boys began to call out for them, 
he fell down in his crib and began crying. And Russell Moore's wife, Maria, began crying, and he turned back and walked in there and put his hands on both boys' heads and said, I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. And that's, he said, he goes, I just couldn't think of what else to say. That's what came to his mind. It was John 14, 18. That's what the Lord said. And he said, when he heard that sound of that little boy crying, one that he was going to adopt, he said, for him, that was a beautiful sound. Because he said he realized for that boy, for the first time in his life, that boy knew if he cried, someone would hear and someone would care. And so that's what we're reading here in Romans 8. Paul is telling us that through the Holy Spirit, we can now cry, Abba, Father. And that is the highest privilege of the Christian life. It is. The greatest privilege we have that we've been adopted into the family of God. That God is now our Father and Jesus is our elder brother. So listen, beginning in verse 14 through verse 17, this is where Paul introduces this great theme that we are the children of God. He's never brought that in up to this point, but he brings it in big time here. He labors it in these verses. So previously, he said, we've talked about this, he says we live according to the Spirit, that the Spirit dwells in us, and that that Spirit in us is life. And I just briefly want to go back to verse 12. He says, because of those things that we talked about, he says, therefore, brethren, we are debtors. We're under an obligation. Now, usually in the New Testament, we're told that we're under an obligation to live a certain way. Why? Because of what the Lord Jesus Christ did on the cross, his death on the cross. In 2 Corinthians 5, for example, it says there that he died for all, Jesus, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. That's the motivation that's given there. And that's true and that's right. But here we're told that we're obligated to the spirit that dwells in us. That's where our obligation is here. And why would that be said? Why is that? An old preacher that I read has a good answer for that. And that is, it's because the spirit that dwells in us, it's called the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ. It's the same spirit of God that dwelt in the temple in the Old Testament is now dwelling in us. Now I'm saying, let's not pass over that too quickly, what's being said there. Because you think of the awesome presence of God when he was in the temple. The Holy of Holies, where his presence was literally they were afraid of that. No one would go near that. That was death, wasn't it? The high priest would go in there once a year, the Day of Atonement, have the bells, and they're listening. Is he going to make it out or not? And what about, you know, in the New Testament, Zacharias goes in. Now, he didn't go into the most holy place, but he was in the holy place, offering incense on the altar. And the people are without listening. He's taking a long time listening. They're praying. What's taking him so long? Man, maybe something bad's happened to him. Maybe God has killed him. So this is an incredible place. And you think the Spirit of God that dwelt there is the same Spirit of God that dwells in us. We are the temple of God. And Paul's saying that is an awesome obligation, isn't it? Isn't that what he's telling us there in verse 12? He told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, What? Know you not 
that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, which you have of God. And he says, you're not your own. You say you're filled with the Holy Spirit. We can't live just any way we want to anymore, can we? That's what he's talking about here. And I have a book at home. And the title of the book is The Guest of the Soul. And it's a book all about the indwelling Holy Spirit. He explains in there, the Holy Spirit is the guest of our soul. He comes in. He lives in us to comfort us, to convict us, to instruct us, to empower us, right? He's a guest, but he's a guest, the Bible teaches us, that will abide forever. Don't we have the Holy Spirit? Once you receive the Holy Spirit, he's there forever. But the thing is, he is a holy guest nonetheless. God himself living within us. What a thought that is, right? And so, how do you tell your children to act when you have an important guest to come over? You better be on your best behavior, right? We got somebody important coming over here, right? And the thing is, we act different too, don't we? If it's somebody important. You know, my daughter was telling me, the guy that owns the Chick-fil-A where she works at, you know, he's a young guy, but she says, man, when he comes in, he's a nice guy. She likes him. He's not mean. She says, everybody acts different in there. I'm like, yeah, because he's the owner. So shouldn't we act a little different? Our permanent guest, the Holy Spirit, don't you think he's as important? The most important guest anybody could have, living inside of us. And that guest is with us everywhere we go, isn't he? Everywhere we go, he hears everything we say, knows everything we think. He's grieved when we speak evil, and he gives us joy when we obey. He's leading and guiding us in everything we do. And so we have an obligation, is what Paul's saying in verse 13. I have an obligation to put to death everything that would offend our guest. Everything that would grieve him. Everything that is against the law that he, God, himself in us, has written on our hearts. Because it says that's what he would do when he came to live in us. Would write the law in our hearts. I think that's an awesome thought to think that the Holy Spirit, God himself, lives in us. The guest of our soul. The living God dwelling in our soul. The spirit of life. And so here's what happens when the Holy Spirit is in us and leading us to kill our flesh and manifest his fruit in holy living. We can know something then. That's what we're moving on to here. We can know what? He's saying in verse 14, we can know that we are the sons of God. The Holy Spirit in us will tell us that. So it says our spirit should know that, but he's saying the Holy Spirit is telling us that in agreement with that, something outside of us, right? That we are the children of God. That's what verses 15 to 17 are all about. One thing the Holy Spirit is given to us for is to confirm our legal transaction. Legally, we've been adopted by God, and the Holy Spirit lets us know that that transaction has taken place. And that is the great purpose of the cross. So Christianity and the cross is not just so that we can be forgiven. The purpose is that we can be the Spirit-filled family of God. That's the purpose. And so if you would, turn over to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4, and we'll see that pretty clearly here. Galatians 4, 4, Paul writes, For when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, 
that. Here is the purpose. Here's the purpose for all that. That we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, verse 6, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, you are no more a slave or a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. But he's saying that's the purpose Jesus came back to redeem us. To pay that price on that cross so that we could be members of God's family, his children. That's the ultimate purpose. That's the ultimate purpose of what he's come to do. So to be justified, it's the ground. Justified by faith. We have to have that as the ground of our salvation, right? But God didn't just stop there. The ultimate goal of God is our adoption. That's what we just read in Galatians. So listen, we could have been forgiven and cleansed and then just set out on the streets. He could have put us on the streets, forgiven and cleansed, right? That happens. I go in prison. That happens all the time to those guys. They'll get paroled, rehabilitated, and then they're sent out on the streets. In a sense, their record's clean, right? But guess what they get out there? A lot of them, they have no family. They have no love in their life. They have no fatherly influence or oversight. And I mean, they are right back in a short time. Just happened to a guy we know in there. A guy like can't wait to get out, can't wait to get out, gets out. Now he can't wait to get back in, I guess, because he's back in. He's out for maybe a month. But listen, God doesn't do that to us, does he? He doesn't just forgive us and let us go. He does forgive us. But then comes adoption. We're brought into a new family. Jesus, it says, is our elder brother, and God becomes our father. And not only that, he doesn't just forgive us and what our past. He gives us his nature. Partakers of the divine nature, the Bible says. There's no reluctance on God's part to do that. So he doesn't look at any of us in here and think, look, this isn't the child I was expecting to adopt. Oh, no, no. He knew what he was getting long before he ever picked us out, long before the transaction ever took place. Because he knew when he got all of us in there, he was getting rejects. Nobody adopts rejects generally. I mean, some people do, right? And as a Christian, I guess you would, right? But he looked on us and it says he loved us. Oh, not because we were adoptable, cute little babies. No, we were just the opposite of that. But it says he set his love on us. He set his radar on us to love us way before we ever came into existence. But he did that when we were a total mess. And if you would turn to one other scripture that, to me, this is one of my favorite scriptures, graphically displays who we were and what God did for us. Ezekiel 16. You got Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel in the Old Testament, and we can look at Ezekiel 16. This is the love of God for us. We'll see right here his fatherly love for us. Ezekiel 16, beginning in verse 1. And it says, Again, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations. And say, Thus saith the Lord unto Jerusalem, Thy birth and thy nativity is of the land of Canaan. Thy father was an Amorite and thy mother a Hittite. And as for thy nativity in the day that thou wast born, thy navel was not cut. Neither wast thou washed in water to supple thee. Thou wast not salted at all, nor swaddled at all. None I pitied thee to do any of these unto thee. 
to have compassion upon thee, but you were cast out in the open field to the loathing of thy person in the day that you were born. Ah, just left out there in your mess, your birth mess. Nobody cared about you, just cast out there. But look what God says. But when I, God, passed by you, and I saw you polluted in your own blood, I said to thee, when you were in thine own blood, live. Yea, I said unto thee, when you were in thine own blood, live. I have caused you to multiply as the bud of the field, and thou hast increased and waxen great, and thou art come to excellent ornaments. Thy breasts are fashioned, and thine hair is grown, whereas thou wast naked and bare. Now when I passed by thee and looked upon thee, behold, thy time was the time of love. I spread my skirt over thee and covered thy nakedness. Yea, I swear unto thee and entered into a covenant with thee, saith the Lord God, and you became mine. He adopted us then when we were a mess. He put his love on us. Verse 9, and then I washed thee with water. Yea, I thoroughly washed away thy blood from thee and anointed thee with oil and so on and so forth. But that is when God adopted us in our blood and pollution, in our sinful state. We were wretched in his eyes. That's what our sin looked like. And yet, it says, he freely chose us. He didn't have to. He wasn't regretful that he chose us. He freely chose to love us. Like I said, most people, they want to adopt healthy children. And God adopts the unhealthy. That's how his love and his grace is manifested to us. You know, there was a little girl that was cruelly picked on in school over in England. She was picked on because the kids knew that she was an orphan and had been adopted. And one day it says she turned to her tormentors. And this is what she said to him. I thought this was funny. She says, ah, she says, my mother and father chose me. Yours had to take what they got. <laughs> now, I thought that was good. My mother and father chose me. That was a good answer there. God must have given her that with yours. I had to take what they got. Right? <laughs> now, Russell Moore's got this book. It's called Adopted for Life. Anybody that's thinking of adopting, it's an excellent book to get. But he says in that book, he says, we have to know, and I thought this was a good point he made, that adopted is not an adjective. It's a past tense verb. Because we have no adopted sons in this church. Now what I mean by that, there are many sons and daughters of God that have been made that through adoption. So all of us were orphans at one time, were we not? God wasn't our father to begin with, but he doesn't look at you and say, that's Dave, my adopted child. Dave Hamilton, picking on him in the back today, right? No, he looks at Dave and says, this is my child. My son, in whom I am well pleased. And then he might explain how Dave became his child through adoption. It's not the same, though. Adopted is not an adjective. Let me put it another way. So my daughter Jenny was born through a lot of pain and prayer. It was intense when she had her birth. Now, I don't introduce her as, this is my hard labor daughter Jenny. <laughs> well, I say, this is my daughter Jenny. And then I might tell you how she came into this world through hard labor, right? But here, she's my daughter, right? Period. Right? 
Like I said, we were all orphans, weren't we? We were all under the slavery of Satan headed to death and hell. That's where we all were. And so it doesn't matter how we all became children of God, does it? All that matters is that God looks on everyone in here that has repented and given their life to the Lord Jesus Christ. He looks on anyone like that. You are my son and my daughter, period. There's a period there, right? Not second class family members. And here's one to chew on for a while. It says in Jesus in his high priestly prayer, do you really believe that God loves you as much as he loves his son? But yet he does. Now that's a hard pill to swallow, isn't it? Shouldn't be hard, but I don't know how much we really believe that. But Jesus in his high priestly prayer prayed this. He says, I have declared, he's praying to the Father, I have declared to them your name and will declare it that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. John 17, 26, that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. So no one doubts that the Father had supreme love for the Lord Jesus Christ. But do you believe that he loves you with the same care and affection that he loved the Lord Jesus Christ? And the reason he does is because we are in union with him. It's just like the whole thing about the husband and wife. They're viewed as one, one flesh. And God views us as one flesh with the Lord Jesus Christ. Outside of him, oh, it's wrath. But inside of him, it's the love of the Father. We're beloved. Doesn't Paul many times write to the beloved? He does. And that's what God said about his son. This is my beloved son. And he says that about us. Not because of anything in us, but because of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. You think he doesn't love you? John says, 1 John 3, 1, Behold, look, what manner of love that the Father has bestowed, lavished on us, that we, we orphans, despicable, that we should be called the sons of God. Period. Behold what manner of love that is. And so that's the question. Well, I taught on this here, it's been a year and a half. I told Lisa, I said, you can't teach on this too much. In a way, I mean, it's just got to be something in your thinking because the world and the devil are trying to make you think that you're anything but that. And your circumstances. Do you see yourself as a son of God? God is your father. And J.I. Packer Great book to read, that Knowing God book. But in that book, he says this. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child. And having God as his father, if this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he doesn't understand Christianity very well at all. Wow. And we'll talk about that. Once you see that God's your Father, you start reading the New Testament, it affects everything that you do throughout your day. The fact that God is your Father. And so He wants us to know that we are His sons and daughters. He doesn't want us to be oppressed. Go back to Romans 8. He doesn't want us to be oppressed with the spirit of slavery. That life of fear and drudgery. So look in verse 14. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. And he says, for you have not received the spirit of bondage again to what? 
to fear. And so let me ask you, he's explaining there about how the Spirit of God leads us. Does the Spirit of God lead us as a slave in bondage? Does he treat us, the Spirit of God in us, does he treat us like prisoners in a chain gang? I mean, they treat those guys pretty rough back in the day when they had them. I doubt if they have any more. No, he doesn't do that, does he? It says he replaces that, that spirit of fear of a slave to his master. He replaces that with the love of a son toward his father and vice versa. So listen, living the crucified life, it's not meant to be a cold, hard disinterested life between a slave and his master. And it can become that. Can it? Oh, it definitely can become that. Because God gives us the spirit of adoption, sonship. And he brings a relationship between himself as father and us. Right? He does that. And that should be giving us a desire to please him. Not from a spirit of insecurity and fear and a servant mentality and worry that I haven't done enough, but from a spirit that is knit together in love, a son that loves to please his father, that desires and longs to make his father happy and pleased with him. And listen, this is clearly seen in the story of the prodigal son. So the elder brother, he served his father. But I'm telling you, there was no love for his father in his heart. It was all duty, hoping to gain his favor, hoping to one day be rewarded. And I'm saying, when that's your attitude, you will never do enough. You'll never felt like you've done enough to make this master happy. That's what that slavery spirit is all about. And so listen to what the elder brother says. He wasn't happy with the way the father treated the prodigal that returned. But listen to what he said. Luke 15, 29, he said this, he says, Lo, these many years do I serve thee. And that word for serve there is the word for slave. These many years do I serve thee, neither transgress I at any time thy commandment. And yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. And you can hear it there. That guy resented his dad, felt like he was never appreciated. And I like the way the NET translates that verse. Translate it like this. Look, the elder brother's saying, These many years I have worked like a slave for you, and I never disobeyed your commands, yet you never gave me even a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. And listen to his words. These many years, it's been a long, hard toil serving you, Dad. All that time. And then he hits him up with two nevers. Well, I never disobeyed you, but you never even gave me, not a fatted calf like you gave my brother, you didn't even give me a measly little goat to have a party with. That's his accusation, isn't it? So for him, obedience to his father was cold, hard, and he hated it. You know why? Was it his dad's fault? It wasn't his dad's fault. His dad wasn't like that. He never allowed himself to be open to his father's true heart. And we can hear the holiness, faith message, and that can be bondage to us. It's not that God's trying to make your life miserable or the principles we've been taught are wrong, but you're not opening yourself up to the love of the father. All the difference in the world. 
I'm saying, did he really discern his father's heart right? No, he didn't. Obviously, he didn't. Just like the man in Matthew 25, I know that thou art an austere man, a hard man, reaping where you did not sow. That was not the right accusation. He was a wicked and slothful servant. But that elder brother throws this accusation at that father, and this was the father's reply. He said, son, you are ever with me, and all that I have is thine. He spoke kindly to him. Like, you didn't judge me right. You're always here. You're my son, and everything I have is yours. You're welcome to it. That's the way he answered it. So how do you see your identity as God's child? Because Paul is telling us here, God is not a slave driver. That's not the way he is. And I'll tell you, though, people that view him that way, people can live outwardly good lives under the threat of punishment. They can. This man named Mark Dever, I wrote this in my little quote thing. I read this a while back. But somebody was asking him, a man came up to him, he said, can you tell me the difference between Christianity and Islam? And this was his answer. He said, you can put a sword to someone's throat and make him at least a sufficiently good Muslim. He says, but I cannot put a sword to someone's throat and make him a Christian. Right? Because that's not what Christianity is all about. It's about experiencing the love of God and loving obedience to him like Jesus did. Right? Because 1 John 4.18 says there is no fear in love. But perfect love cast out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. So when you as a Christian and I as a Christian realize God's love, when his love is flooded into our hearts and we realize there is now no more condemnation. What we read in verse 1, it's gone. My father loves me. I can mess up. He'll correct me, but his love never ends. That's what the Bible teaches. And Romans 5, 5 says this, that the love of God is shed abroad. Poured out is what that word means. In our hearts by, this is what we're reading here in Romans 8, by the Holy Spirit. That's how the love of God, it's nothing we're going to work up or dream up or intellectually figure out. It isn't. It's a supernatural event that takes place. The Holy Spirit pours out the love of God into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, he says, who was given unto us. And that can grow. And that's why Paul has his prayer in Ephesians chapter 3. He says, I'm on my knees praying that God will open you and strengthen you that you can understand the love of Christ, which passes knowledge beyond height, depth, whatever. Something that can grow. But compare the elder brother, to the prodigal. You know, the prodigal comes back, and he had his speech all planned out. We're talking about God replaces that servant spirit with one to be in a son. And this is what he was going to say. He says, this is what I'll say to my dad. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. And he was going to finish that by saying, just make me one of thy hired slaves. And so when he comes running and they have the big meeting, he starts in on that, right? And he gets this far. Father, I've sinned against heaven and in thy sight and no more worthy to be called thy son. And as he gets to say the next thing, the father cuts him off, won't let him finish. Uh-uh. I'm not going to listen to this. You're my servant, my slave. No. 
The next thing that's said when the son gets to that point, no more worthy to be called thy son, the father cuts him off. He says, bring forth the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. For this my son, he says. You can hear the love in that, the love and affection that's been pent up. While his son was gone. For this my son is back. That's what the father's saying. He's returned and he's his son. He's not a slave. It doesn't tell us about the rest of the story, but I can imagine the prodigal stayed with the father, didn't he? He went back and had the same duties and responsibilities, I'm sure, before he left. But what a difference there would have been in him in performing those duties, right? <laughs> he would have done them now out of love for this father. He would have known my dad's not demanding. Everything he's asking just is what needs to be done. He's fair. He's not putting me in bondage. He would have done the same things he did before, but now he would have said, I've experienced this love and care of my father. Totally changes everything, right? His father might have seemed demanding, but he wasn't a slave driver. And here's what we need to see. God, our father is not a slave driver. He is the perfect father. God is the perfect father. Now the world hates his commandments and it is a burden to them. They are a burden, but not to a renewed heart. Because listen, this is what it says in 1 John 5, for this is the love of God. This is what we know when we have experienced God's love, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous or burdensome. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. Oh man, we just got to get it down that God really does love us and have our best interest in mind. <laughs> Matthew seven eleven, he says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven Give good things to them that ask him. How much more? He's the perfect father. We're not the perfect fathers. We'd like to be, right? And like I said, so having that idea makes obedience totally different. And in the Bible, it should influence every aspect of your life. Your security. You got problems coming, worries coming your way. He says what? Casting all your care upon him. Why? Because you can know your heavenly father, he cares for you. And your finances, everybody's in here working, the world's worrying, you know, that's what gets presidents elected, how the economy's doing, everybody's worrying about that. But Jesus said, seek ye not what ye shall eat, what ye shall drink, neither be you of doubtful mind. And he goes on to say in Luke 12, he says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You don't have to worry. Trust in your father. I tell my kids all the time. Y'all don't worry about who's going to pay the bills and put food. Do you ever come home and worry about that? I never did growing up. I knew my dad would take care of me. And your heavenly father says he will do that for you and your family. What about forgiveness? As far as the east is from the west, Psalm 103, so far as he removed our transgressions from us, like as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities them that fear him. And every day when we pray, our prayers should start off, how? 
our Father. My Heavenly Father. With that in mind, He's looking out for me through this day. He lives in me, walking with me. He cares for me. And how about our holy walk? You know, Paul doesn't say, walk holy so that God will be in you. No, he says just the opposite. He says, knowing that the Father is in you and walking in you, therefore. That's what he says, 2 Corinthians 6. He says, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and I will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Paul says, having therefore, because of that, having these promises, Dearly beloved, God loves you. Dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Knowing that he's our father, we respect him for who he is, the perfect father. Therefore, because of that, he's walking in us. Our God, let us therefore cleanse ourselves. <laughs> right? <laughs> when we walk through life, if you think about it, if you really, truly, he appeared to you and said, I love you, no doubt about it. I'm going to walk with you and care for you. Wouldn't everything about your life change from the time you got up in the morning? Your whole outlook. But especially, we're seeing here in Romans 8, your prayer life changes. Because when the Holy Spirit comes in as that spirit of adoption, he causes us to cry out in prayer to our Heavenly Father Abba, Father. Isn't that what it says there in verse 15? You have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. So the Spirit prompts us to pray to the Father in our prayers, just like Jesus did when he prayed in the garden. So there's three places Abba, Father occurs. Galatians, here, and in Mark, Mark's account. When Jesus was in distress in the garden, he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. And it said, a man studied all the prayers that were, not all of them, but a bunch of them, I guess, most of them, that Jews would pray. He said, no Jew would ever address God and call him Abba. Oh, no. You wouldn't be that familiar with God if you were a Jew. Because that was a word that expressed affection between a son and a father. Now, people talk about it's like a two-year-old baby, da-da. That is not what it was. It started off as a young child, but it just came to mean a term of endearment, affection, and respect for a son to his father, even as they were growing up. I mean, I don't call my dad Jerry. I mean, I couldn't do that. That'd be a total lack of respect. But I call him dad. When I call him that, it's affection and respect both are in there. I'll plead with him sometimes, Dad, <laughs> don't do that, please. <laughs> You're going to get in a wreck, Dad. <laughs> 84 driving. But you know what I'm saying. But Jesus, hey, he did something no one had done up to that time. He calls God Father in his prayers every time except for one prayer. Do you know what prayer that was? When he's on the cross as our substitute and he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But it wasn't a little bit after that. He says, Father, into thy hands I commend thy spirit. And so what did Jesus do? He authorized us, didn't he? When they said, teach us to pray, pray for our Father. Authorized us to pray and address God just like he did, right? That's what he said on the Sermon on the Mount. And so what's he saying? You think about that. He's saying, you don't have to pray 
to God like the heathen do. Because what are they doing? They're praying. Think about this. The heathen, they're praying to impersonal forces or an impersonal God. So Allah to Islam, the Muslims, he's cold. They're hoping one day he'll be merciful. But the idea of God being a father and one of love, they do not know that. They would consider that blasphemy. And so the heathen Jesus says they just keep repeating their prayers. This impersonal force, this impersonal God, they just hope somehow something's going to happen. And he says, you don't have to pray like that because God, your Father, is not impersonal. You have a Heavenly Father that loves you, that cares for you, and already knows what you need. And he goes, and after this manner, therefore, because of that, pray ye our Father which art in heaven. He's saying he's my Father, and because we're brothers and you're united to me, you can pray to him just like I do. Abba, Father. Same confidence and affection that Jesus did and the Father shows we can have in our prayer life. Make all the difference in the world. And a famous preacher said this, the reason Paul uses the word cry here in Romans 8.15 and the Aramaic word Abba is because both of them point to a deep, affectionate, personal, authentic experience of God's fatherly love. Now, I thought that was good. The reason Paul uses the word cry, we cry Abba, Father, and the Aramaic word Abba is because both of them point to a deep, affectionate, personal, authentic experience of God's fatherly love. So the point of all this is, this isn't some dry, bookish, doctrinal experience that Paul's talking about here. It's an emotional experience. You don't cry, Abba, Father. You don't just, Abba, Father. You don't do it like that, right? It's emotion. A cry that comes from the depths of your being at times. That's happened for me. Oh, I've been on my knees, Father. I'm pleading. I need your help, God. Have you all not experienced that in your prayer life? Boy, I hope you have. Right? So he pours out his love in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, and we respond by the same Holy Spirit and love to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, I'm asking you to do this or that, right? So when you're in a hard way going through a tough time, that is not the time to avoid the Lord, and a lot of people do. Not the time. Get on your knees and pour out your heart to your Heavenly Father like David did all throughout the Psalms. And so when we go into our closets and pour out our hearts to God, does He rebuke us? Does He punish us for bothering Him? You know, man, I've got a universe to run. What are you bothering me about, right? That's not what He says. What does He say in Matthew 6? He says, you go in secret, you get in your closet, pray to your Father in secret, and He says He'll do what? He will reward us. Reward, not punish. What does it say in Hebrews eleven six? He is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. So God delights to bless us. He delights to commune with us. And he likes us to come to him with childlike confidence. So whether we believe it or not, God does delight in his children having personal contact with him. You know, my kids come down and they'll tell me, usually when they get home from whatever they've been doing, they, I'm down in my office, they come all the way down the steps into my office to tell me how their day's gone. Now, I've never been like, man, would you all quit bothering me? I don't care about how your day's gone. I've never felt that way. I'm actually, I'm blessed by hearing their day, but by the fact they care enough 
of our relationship that they'll come down and tell me that. And that's me. And we're saying God is a perfect father. So if my kids and your kids aren't bothering you, I hope they don't, when they come and talk to you to share things about their lives, right? How much more God, our father, we're not bothering him. Martin Lowe Jones said this, he says, we must get rid of this mathematical notion of prayer, this idea of duty. He says, the great, the holy, the almighty God is our father. He cares for us. He's counted the hairs of our head. <laughs> well, some of us is less than others, right, Mr. Reedy? Yes, amen. Well, so what we've said today is what? Adoption. That's what we've been talking about. God becoming our father, bringing us into his family to be his special holy people. That is the great plan of salvation. That's what it's all about. And so eternity, which we should be looking forward to right, every day, we're going to be in the midst of the family of God, enjoying the presence of the triune God and the fellowship of the entire family of God there. We will. We will enjoy that fellowship, right? Because it's going to be in holiness and righteousness. Nobody's going to be doing anybody wrong, backbiting. None of that's going to be going on in heaven. Thoroughly will enjoy that fellowship, worshiping God, living in health, and experiencing His creation like He intended. Our Father, that's what heaven is going to be like. I had a guy say this, read a guy say this. He says, you need to get up every morning. And now you're not going to talk yourself into something. We need to remind ourselves we have a different father. We have a heavenly father. We're part of a different family. We are of the saints of the Bible that we read. That is us. That's our identity. That's the family we're a part of now. And remind ourselves of that. We're not going to be treated like the rest of the world. We have a father, a sovereign God that's looking out for us, that has our care and concern. Now let me end with this. I normally don't end with an illustration or a story, but I do today. So Michael Reagan, he was the son of Ronald Reagan. He was a talk show host, radio talk show he did. And he wrote a book called Twice Adopted. I don't know all of his background. Claims to be a Christian, for all I know he is. I don't know. But anyways, he writes in this book that he got a call from his son's teacher, his son Cameron. She's worried about him. She says she noticed that something's troubling him to the point of tears. And Michael Reagan asks her, he says, well, where is he? And she says, well, he's out on the steps of the school crying. So he leaves his work, wherever he was working, and went immediately to his son. And he sits down beside his son, and he asks him what's wrong. And he's a third grader, a little boy, third grader. And he finally gets himself saddled down enough and holds the tears back far enough that he asks this question. He says, Daddy, is Grandpa really my Grandpa? And he answered back, he said, well, of course he is. And he said, why are you asking that? And he looked down at his shoes, the little boy did, Cameron, and he said, because one of the kids told me that you're adopted. And if you're adopted, you're really not Grandpa's son. And if you're not really his son, then Grandpa's not really my Grandpa. And that cut Michael Reagan, he said. He said he'd been dealing with that all of his life. Those words went through him like a spear. Got him in a vulnerable place. Because he said his father had made it clear to him that he was his son and there were no more questions, but other people would always bring it up. And he said the press would always report it, that this not Ronald Reagan's son, but Ronald Reagan's adopted son, like what we talked about, made it an adjective. And that hurt him. 
Now, here was the answer that he gave his boy, powerful answer. He says, Cameron, I was adopted into the Reagan family, and the Reagan family is my family. President Reagan is my father, and he's your grandpa. You are the grandson of the president and part of his family, just like I am. And then he pointed over to a guy in a dark suit wearing sunglasses, and he says, if you weren't the grandson of a president, you wouldn't have these secret service agents around you all the time. And the kid thought about it. He goes, well, I guess not. And that settled it for the little boy, right? Now listen, the devil, in the, he's always hassling us about that we're not truly God's sons. How can you know? He hassled Jesus about that, if you are the son of God, right? He's always hassling about Now we don't have secret service agents to point to, but you know what we can point to? The cross. The greatest demonstration of our Father's love. And so listen, if you've repented and put your trust in life in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a new identity. You have a new family. You're no longer a sinner, a slave of sin, but a son of God. With the Spirit of God dwelling in you if you've received that. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, for these truths that you've shown us here, Father, that we are part now of a new family with a new identity and that you as our Father, you'll never leave us and forsake us like some worldly fathers do, but you promise that you'll walk in us through your Holy Spirit all the days of our life. Correct us when we need to, just like the perfect Father would. And I thank you, Lord, that you say that we could be confident of this very thing, that the work that you have begun in us that you'll bring to completion to the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just ask that you'll make these truths that we've talked about today real to all of us and have it affect our prayer life, the way we walk in our daily life, as we trust you for all things, Lord, that we can put our hand in yours and know that you'll watch out for us and take care of us. And I thank you for this word that you've given us in this Bible, that we can know who the true God is. That he is a loving father, not a cold, hard, detached God, but that you are a God that cares about us and that is involved with us and that will take care of us. Amen. I just thank you for that. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.